The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm your host, along with Bruce Barquette. Happy Monday evening, Bruce. How's it going? <laughs> Happy Monday evening. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Better than you. I'm not. I'm not do- doing 30 trials every other day in no, different counties. I complained for two years that COVID was stopping us from litigating in the courtroom, and God apparently heard <laughs> those complaints and has answered in spades. Right. Uh, and I- I guess I'm, I'm I'm lucky to be doing some appearances and work in the uh, office. Stick around, stick around. We'll be we'll be on trial together in all too short of a time with a rather complicated, to say the least, international narcotics quadruple homicide case uh, in federal court that'll take us about four to six weeks to complete. And it's a case that we, our firm has handled for six years. It'll be one of the more complex cases that you and I have tried, and that's saying something. Indeed, that's kind. Well, we don't of want to talk about that, right? Because that's about our. No, case. no, no. But I will say what's what's interesting about our practice is, or what's frustrating rather. There's many things that are frustrating, and there's many things that are wonderful, but it's just the not knowing your schedule, right? And always being on a judge's calendar. And in federal court, they're pretty good at setting schedules saying trial starts March 13th, and you know, you're starting a trial. In state court, not so much. Your case can be put over for trial like 15 times. And the DA has to be ready with all their witnesses. You have to be ready, but they care less about that. And the judge has to be ready and have a courtroom available. They have to have jurors available. And you just never know as you're walking in the first time, the second time, the third time, the fifth time, the 13th time, whether or not the trial is really going to begin um, or how long the trial is actually going to last. Because, you know, you, you estimate, OK, 13 witnesses or 45 witnesses, it should take this amount of time. And then here comes Bruce Barquette crossing oh, a witness stop, for three stop, days stop, stop. <laughs> that doesn't happen actually no, it happened once <laughs> we're, we're pretty efficient about these things uh because as we learn uh and know cross-examining witnesses is you have to make the point in one session one session being one court session which is usually not more than a couple of hours uh if you can't make a point with a witness in that amount of time you're not going to do well. Now, sometimes you have witnesses with multiple points, so you might cross them for more than one session, but you darn well better make it interesting each and every time you do it. So we're um, treading water here a little bit. Let's move into the interesting cases and matters that we have to discuss this week on Crime and Justice Radio. Well, there's there's a lot. We're going to probably limit it to three or four um, obviously, we're, I think we're going to skip Alec Baldwin and, and see what happens in the future. But he was formally charged. I think one of the would-be co-defendants pled guilty is probably testifying against him. The prosecutor has already unveiled a 44-witness list. 
Um, and we'll see what happens with that. He's either facing one and a third to, you know, one and a half years or five years, uh, depending on how you read the statute. Um, Trump still under investigation in the grand jury. And because it's a secret proceeding, um, no one quite knows what's going to happen or what he's actually being charged well, with. But, but you, you, he's under investigation in multiple jurisdictions. So he's under investigation in Atlanta for um, election tampering, election fraud. He's under investigation in the state of New York for financial crimes and for filing uh, false financial forms for his campaign. and Relating to Stormy Daniels, Stormy right. Daniels. And he's under investigation for keeping classified records in Florida. And he's under investigation in Washington for his contribution to the events of January 6th. Um, most interesting, and Mark Pomerantz, uh, who is one of the more prominent New York lawyers, and that's saying something, right? You have lawyers in different parts of the country. The lawyers in New York City are among the best in the world. Um, Mark is one of the elders, if you will, of a very well-respected elder in the state of uh, in the city of New York one of the most respected attorneys for decades, really. He was the former chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York, a very prestigious uh, spot. And he was hired by out by the Manhattan DA's office to investigate Trump, uh, did so, was ready to bring an indictment charging Trump with a number of criminal uh, matters. And Alvin Bragg, according to Pomerantz, pulled the plug on it. And... Pomerantz is, is notably angry, so much so that he uh, published, he wrote and published a book about his grand jury investigation of Donald Trump and the crimes he allegedly committed. You know, and, I get angry a lot. If I get really mad, can I write a book and sell it and make lots of Oh my of God, you'd, you'd have a whole library. There'd be a Bruce Barquette section of <laughs> angry moments, um, which I've had the great pleasure of witnessing and everyone in the courtroom is alarmed and I'm usually chuckling to myself. I'm like, there he goes again. Oh, um, oh, but go what's interesting is he was on 60 Minutes and he was uh, recounting the evidence that he accumulated against Donald Trump. And he made a pretty compelling case against him. Um, that said, I'm curious about his book. I, I want to read it because he's no dummy. He worked for the Southern District. He's at Paul Rifkin. Uh, he's a seasoned veteran of criminal law, both in the prosecution and defensive. And he wouldn't reveal uh, sealed grand jury information. The grand jury is a secret proceeding, but I think he probably did a careful dance and revealed evidence that is otherwise public or out there, like bank statements and uh, other interviews of uh, Mr. Cohen, his previous attorney, and so forth. But he made a pretty compelling case on 60 Minutes well, last night. I'm well, not sure we've heard the other side or Alvin Bragg's side. You know, if you're going to well, shoot at the king, you better, better, better know your... What's the expression? You shoot at the king, you better kill him. Right. So and, let's, uh, let's, Alvin Bragg Don't want to make any promises, but Mark and uh, us share a common past client uh, and I've had some dealings with him over the years 
So might be a good guest for a future crime and justice segment to talk about this and talk about his book. So, But it, in, enough about celebrities. Let's talk real crime and justice issues, New right? York City, New York City police officers. Right. Um, so my alma mater, the Legal Aid Society, issued a report where they calculated all the settlements that they could determine uh, over the last few years. And this report um, has been written about pretty much everywhere, the New York Times, the New York Post, and so forth. And they claim that New York City paid out $121 million in police misconduct settlements last year, 2022. And that's the highest amount that's been paid out in five years. Can we, and, can we brag for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Please do. Marquette, Epstein, Kieran, Aldea, and Laturco is responsible for 10% of that. 10% right. of that went to, more than 10% went to one of our clients, uh, Samuel Brownridge. For he very much time. deserved it. Very much deserved it. He received a, a settlement from the city in 2022 of $13 million for having spent 25 years in uh, prison for a murder that everyone now concedes. When I say everyone, the DA's office, the judge, everyone concedes he did not uh, commit. And so I, I, I brag because it was the work of our firm that got him exonerated. It was the work of our firm uh, that got him a settlement with the state of New York for a wrongful conviction. It was the and highest, was it the highest, was the highest right? Settlement, highest settlement uh, to to date or to that date, and um, thirteen million from thirteen million from the city uh, for Mr. Brownridge. So very pleased about that. Very proud of the work that Donna Aldea did uh, to get him exonerated, and Alex Klein, and you, uh, and as well as other members of the firm in negotiating the settlement. So it's a big deal. It really is. And I know people are sitting there saying, oh, $13 million plus really another six from the state. You got $19 million. What wouldn't I do for $19 million? And I can promise you the answer is you wouldn't spend 25 years in a New York state prison with the opportunity to be there for life. I promise you, you wouldn't take and, that. And deal. with all that that entails, including if you're not victimized and brutalized by violence yourself you fear it every single day you witness it every single day not to mention the conditions the vermin the cockroaches the quality of food the being told what to do the loved ones family members that you watch visiting you having to go through metal detectors and get body checked you know, an elderly woman, your mother, uh, in order to to sit down in a room that's that's everybody's watching you and your every move. There's rules about if you can hug, when you can hug, how long you can hug, and so forth. And all those Christmases and birthdays and graduations you miss of your and children, funerals. right? And then, and this right. is people that have been that have been exonerated, not just their cases were overturned, but that the you know DA's office, the court, everyone joins in the application for an exoneration, meaning the person was factually innocent and suffered decades in prison watching uh, 
their life completely disappear. And then there's that glory, right? When the person gets out, what a great day. And then, you know, the media is there, everyone's happy, families are reunited, but then the media goes away and the person is left with the cold, brutal reality that they don't know how to use a cell phone. They don't have any money. They don't have any resume. They can't explain their absence in the workforce for the last 20 years in a way that's going to get them employment. The noises, the cars, the the language. I remember maybe this was our client um, saying this, like he was he was saying something and his, 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 his relative said, oh, I forgot to close out the windows. And he thought that meant that she forgot to put the windows down and that's why there was a chill in the house. But really she was talking about the computer. So your language, you know, you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed to ask because you don't know the meaning of certain words. So anyway, 121 million uh, in police misconduct settlements just last year. And I want to say that the total was driven by a small group. So that includes our client, uh, as well as a settlement with a man wrongly accused of assassinated Malcolm X. Um, in 2021, the amount was 87 million in 2020, 62 million. So it's rising. Um, and the claim is that they rose after the George Floyd protest because more people uh, fell victim to police misconduct, but also uh, woke up and became litigious as they should be uh, under those circumstances. And that the numbers um, aren't accurate because they do not include numbers that were settled pre-notice of claim. So before a, a, a suit was actually filed. So for instance, in 20. 19, $22 million in funds were uh, not disclosed because they didn't involve official initiated lawsuits. Um, but so, I will say this. Sorry, go ahead. I, well, I want to talk a little bit about this failed prosecution of Joseph well, Franco, who's a, a, yeah, a police that, officer. That's, and that's the, most actually, the most interesting thing we'll get to in the second half hour, which is the Alex Murdoch murder trial in South Carolina. But let's let's step at a time. Talk about Franco. Yes. Or did I jump ahead? No, 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 no. It's good. We we only have a few minutes left, so that's a really, really important case. We were all watching. Speaking of exonerations or cases being overturned uh, due to yeah, due to police hard. misconduct. Hold on. I, let me finish. Due to all police right. misconduct, <laughs> the Bronx tossed 349 convictions. Manhattan tossed 100 convictions. Brooklyn tossed 90 convictions, all because they were arrests involving uh, Detective Joseph Franco of the NYPD, who they learned uh, had perjured himself on the stand and had lied about numerous drug transactions that he allegedly saw. So it's kind of unique that the DA's office will not just toss out certain cases because the officers aren't credible, but actually go after the prosecutor, uh, the police officer, indict him and go forward with the trial. So uh, notorious Joseph Franco stood trial and Justice uh, Robert Mandelbaum, who I did a hearing in front of during COVID, who is extremely fair, 
in remarkably intelligent and sharp. Um, basically tossed it out or strong-armed the district attorney's office to join in, in their application for a dismissal uh, because the prosecutor had basically hidden evidence from the defense. Talk about irony. Yeah. So, right. Was, I mean, that, that just, it's a, that's a good explanation. The core of it is the cop was on trial for lying about um, narcotics arrests that he was involved with. So as a result, the DA's offices in the in the New York City boroughs had to dismiss hundreds of cases because they couldn't tell whether or not the case that he testified in was brought on merit or brought because he lied. They put him on trial in Manhattan for lying and the DA's office held evidence back that he was otherwise entitled to. Um, simply stunning when you think about it. And it, the lesson for us all is this. The lesson for us all is this, that just because you think somebody did something bad, maybe even really bad, it doesn't mean you get to cut down all the rules that otherwise apply and go after the person just to get them because they did something in your view, i.e. the prosecutor's view, that was really bad. So, if it's a homicide, if it's a rape, if it's a police officer who's lied, they still get the rights that we're all entitled to, and they get them so we don't have these wrongful conviction cases, so we don't have tens of millions of dollars being paid out to individuals, and more importantly, so individuals don't spend decades in jail for crimes that somebody else committed. And this is a, just an, a, a poignant lesson for what happens when prosecutors play games in order to get the, the perpetrator, get the criminal that they've identified. And it happens with a police officer as a defendant. It happens when poor people are defendants. It happens when rich white people are defendants. It happens all the time. And it's outrageous. What rarely happens is prosecutors rarely get punished for it. That, that's, that's true. Now, the irony here, if I'm going to talk irony again, is earlier in our program, a few minutes ago, you corrected me when I said exonerations, but I went on to say also cases overturned uh, due to police misconduct. So um, cases don't always get dismissed because a person's innocent, right? It's uh, statutes were violated um, or there is insufficient evidence, even though the person might be guilty. And here, the evidence that was withheld may actually inculpate him. There's, at this point, no determination that the evidence that was withheld would have been favorable to him. Nonetheless, they failed to disclose um, surveillance videos, communications between mm -hmm. prosecutors, memos from investigators, as well as cell phones from people arrested after Mr. Franco identified them as drug dealers. There were hundreds of audio files of a prosecution witness whose phone conversations were recorded while she was at Rikers Island complex um, and so forth. And even his own attorney, Mr. Tanner, Howard Tanner, said he could not yet determine whether any of the evidence could have helped exonerate his client. I'm wondering if part of the reason this information was withheld was, you know, we, we can say it was intentional. Um, or maybe, just maybe, it was inadvertent. 
and not in bad faith, but nonetheless, we have a new statute, um, the discovery statute requiring prosecutors to turn over all evidence and think about how hard let's let's put ourselves in the position of a prosecutor for a moment. Dare I do that? How hard it would be to I gather all all the evidence related to a case of an officer who's accused of basically setting up hundreds of defendants in drug sale transactions um, and all the discovery from those underlying cases. So I I don't quite know. I, I went through article after article to see if I could glean more information about exactly why they didn't disclose this information. I don't have a transcript of the court proceeding. We'll probably find out more. Um, but he may um, have benefited from, you know, a, a statute, even though the evidence may not have been favorable now. Well, look, we're, we're out of time at this, with this segment. We'll be back in a few minutes after some news and commercials with further discussion and talk about the murder, murder case in South Carolina. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders. Today, that's us, Bruce Barquette. Well, you say My name today, is Anita Leisenring. I'll, I'll tell you what. <laughs> we started off the other segment bragging. I'll brag again a little bit. We actually are expert insiders. I've been practicing law in this field for almost 40 years. I've been a prosecutor. I've been a defense attorney. I've tried more cases than I can count or that I care to remember, although I remember each of them, trials that is. Uh, you've been a practicing attorney now for almost 20 years. We've been involved in some of the most complex and high profile cases on Long Island over the last 30 years. You almost can't find a case in Long Island uh, that was important, reported, and not have a connection to our firm. Um, and I'm immensely proud of it, immensely grateful for the opportunities that the clients have given us, um, tremendously proud of the work that our team has done with different people. So, yeah, we really are expert insiders and in some capacity legal outcasts because there are places that <laughs> we are not so welcome. And right, right. law enforcement. We um, get a bad rep, us criminal defense lawyers. Well, so, speaking of a bad rep, let's so talk let me, let me, Alex Murdoch. Let me tell you where I'm going in a few days. So every year I take a little trip with seven other gentlemen. A couple of them are lawyers. One of them it's very my well. my favorite time lawyers. of year. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, is quiet. You're gone. You're on a golf course. <laughs> yeah, and this year, and this year, we're, um, again, I'm going down to Kiowa in South Carolina, uh, and I'm just so tempted to take a half a day and drive 60 miles west of Charleston to watch this trial for Alex Murdoch. Maybe you'll see my 92-year-old grandmother there because she's in Aiken, South Carolina, and she too is interested, and her friend and her want to go to trial. I've encouraged her to do so. It is one of the wildest cases tell, tell us in about america it. Tell us about and 
I forgot some of the details. I had to take a refresher course because I knew that he's charged with killing his wife, his 50 something year old wife and his son. He had two sons. So killing both of them. Um, but that's no, no, not no, 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 no. Only one son is dead. The other son wait, is wait, still wait, wait, No, he has two sons killing both his wife and his son. I meant, right, right. um, one son survived. I mean, didn't survive. He didn't get shot. <laughs> so he is a survivor. Uh, he must be the favorite son. Um, but I forgot <laughs> that. <laughs> don't don't choke That's on a terrible. Up, Bruce. That's terrible. Right. That is absolutely terrible. The way Listen, you tell my, you the favorite dad, son is don't get shot. I have two siblings, and my dad takes each of us on walks by ourselves where he discloses that each one of us is his favorite. But we figured it out. We compared notes. But anyway, um, this is a, a, the most incredible saga that should be a movie because this is where the case begins. It's not even at the murder. So in 2015, the body of a 19-year-old, Stephen Smith, was found uh, roadside in Hampton County, South Carolina. His death was ruled a hit and run. Uh, but his family had questions because there was some beef or bad blood between him and Paul Murdoch, the son that was shot. So forget about that for a moment. And let's pay attention to 2018, where Gloria Satterfield, who worked as a housekeeper and a nanny for the Murdoch family um, for about 25 years, died after she was reported to have fallen down the front stairs of the family home. OK, so remember that name. Satterfield. She died, uh, was deemed an accident, case closed. About a year later, Alex Murdaugh's youngest son, Paul, once again comes up under suspicion, but here it's actual evidence, who is then 19, is driving a boat, he's drunk, he's got a bunch of friends in it, and he gets into an accident. The passengers are thrown into the water and one of them, a 19-year-old girl, Mallory Beach, was found dead a week later in the water. Um, they would later sue Alex Murdoch and bring pressure on him to reveal details of his finances. Uh, moving quite along, Paul Murdoch, the son, is now is then charged with three felony counts in connection to the boat crash. Um, he pleads not guilty. I'm not sure. Well, I am sure what happened to that case. He died, so it never went forward. Um, then fast forward to about two years later, Mr. Murdoch, Alex Murdoch, who's now on trial, calls 911 to report that his wife and son, Paul, had been shot at the family's hunting property. Um, calls 911, a, a murder investigation begins. At this point, they have no idea who killed them, no idea who would have the motive to kill them, but they start investigating the uh, family or associates of the 19-year-old that was found dead on the side of the highway in 2015, wondering if that had something to do with it because justice was never brought to that uh, teenager's death. Um, so in 2021, they decide to reopen the investigation into that teenager's death. So more pressure is now being put on Alex Murdoch. All of a sudden, a couple months later, Murdoch, who, by the way, works for a white shoe law firm, is a multimillionaire, is forced to resign from the family law firm after his partner said that he misused millions of dollars of client and firm money. 
Okay, so things are looking bad for him at this point, but no one suspects him of murder. Then the next day, he calls, Alex Murdoch calls 911 from the side of the road, claiming that he was shot in the head. And he was shot in the head. Um, and he said the shooter had pulled up beside him in, while he was inspecting a flat tire. And so more questions arise in this crazy investigation. A couple days later, he releases a statement through his lawyer saying he's made some decisions that he regrets and he enters rehab. Okay. Then it is discovered by South Carolina Law Enforcement Division that he admitted that he had asked a former client of his, Curtis Edward Smith, to shoot and kill him. So he admits to, you know, orchestrating his suicide um, and claiming that he did so so that his surviving son, Richard, who's known as Buster, could collect 10 million insurance payment. Um, so at this point, <laughs> uh, they announced law enforcement, an investigation into the death of Miss Satterfield, the housekeeper. Now they're thinking maybe there's more to this uh, trip and fall down the stairs with this woman. It seems everyone connected to this man has died under suspicious circumstances, including his near death. Um, shortly thereafter, they uh, arrest him and charge him with fraud and conspiracy in the suicide scheme He's later, he later goes to a detox center, uh, but then he's charged with swindling millions of dollars from the sons of Miss Satterfield. Well, and he's jailed go ahead. In, in Richmond County for this. Twice he's denied bond. Um, he then settles, I think, with the family of the former housekeeper and nanny for $4.3 million. Uh, the police... I I think what happened was, and this is the fraud, the $4.3 million was the uh, money that he got from insurance for her family, but never paid them a dime. That's the fraud from the family. That got it. She died on his property. Uh, the insur His insurance company paid out, um, and he kept the money. Uh, th this is not looking good for Mr. Murdoch. Um, right. And all of this stuff is out in the media and it has been for some time uh, sort of trickling outward, but with a big splash. Right. Um, and and so I almost forgot about it or I accepted it as part of the case, but it had not yet come into the case in front of the jury. So then he's indicted on two counts of conspiracy, including a narcotics count related to oxycodone. oxycodone. Um, and then shortly thereafter, he's indicted on two counts of murder, saying he fatally shot his wife with a rifle and his son with a shotgun. He pleads not guilty. Um, then he gets indicted for tax evasion. And here we are at the homicide trial. We're on week three. And the big news this weekend was whether or not the judge was going to rule that evidence of his financial desperation and his financial crimes could be admitted in this murder trial to show motive for killing his mother, I mean, excuse me, his wife and his son, right? And we were on Jay Oliver earlier this morning and he said, what do you think, Bruce? Is it going to come in or not? What did you say? I said it's coming in. 
Yeah, and it did. The judge made his ruling and he said it was relevant. But critically, and this is important when you do defense work, um, critically, the judge ruled that the defense had opened the door to this, right? So apparently there were witnesses on the stand and uh, the defense took it as an opportunity to elicit character evidence. So they asked the witnesses, well, do you know, do you know him to be a good person? Would you, do you, do you know of any reason that he would do this? And so gave the prosecution a perfect opportunity to say yes. Um, but what's odd is the connection, right? So I guess one theory would be that if he kills his wife and his son, he can collect on their life insurance and be able to pay back some of this money. <clears throat> or if he kills his wife and son, who maybe knew of the financial crimes, they wouldn't be alive to talk of it to law enforcement. Ugh. So Look, there we the way, are. The way it gets, it's a little worse than this in, in some respects. Uh, he, his wife was shot four times uh, with a rifle, the last of which, or one of which, was execution style in the back of the head. His son was shot twice with a shotgun. Uh, the second, presumably, shotgun blast basically took off his head. It blew apart uh, the young man, young man, he's a teenager, uh, his head leaving nothing but his face, almost like a scene out of Breaking Bad, if you remember how Gus died with the explosion. Oh, I remember. Half, so, I mean, this is just devastating. And I can't imagine that having been done to somebody by anyone, let alone a, a father to a son. You've seen cases where people kill family members, but not like this. This was right. absolutely mental brutal. illness or depression or a suicide, homicide, um, or it's in a jealous rage. It's something relating to extreme emotional disturbance. It's usually personal. It's not to cover up a crime. It's not um, because you're in financial desperation or distress. It is just I, I want to learn more about Alex Murdoch. I mean, I don't mean to I don't mean to insinuate that my mind is made up and that he's not presumed innocence, but the evidence that's coming out at trial is 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 maybe not the financial maybe, the financial crimes are are. I think very, very troubling. Uh, he, we, didn't, we didn't talk a lot about his family had been um, the most prominent lawyers in Colton County, South Carolina for a century. His grandfather uh, was the prosecutor. They had to take down a portrait of a family member in the courthouse to conduct this trial. He lived on a 1,700, 1700 acre estate with his family. The firm was a family law firm, uh, was extraordinarily successful, one of the most successful plaintiff's firms in South Carolina. Uh, this was one of the most, the prosecutor in Colton County had to recuse himself because he knew the family so well, worked for his for Alex's father. Um, for an individual 
that powerful, that well-connected, that wealthy, to be involved in stealing client funds in the way that he did. And that's hard to defend those cases. It's hard to have an innocent explanation for $4 million uh, that should have gone to the family of a um, of a, uh, somebody who died on your property, but instead went to you. That's, that's, there's not a big, I didn't do it defense in that regard. Uh, that raises some real concerns for me as to Mr. Mur Murdoch's, um, what can I say, mental capacity, judgment, morality, character. And initially when you think nobody would ever kill their son that way, right? No rational human being would. And then you hear about the attempt on or faked attempt on his own life. He hired another individual to shoot him so his other son, surviving son, could collect insurance, a $10 million insurance policy. Um, I, I don't want to say my mind is made up, uh, but it's it's a tough, tough case for the defense, given those circumstances. Right. And when you and here's the thing, when you take away this timeline before we even get to his arrest for murder, right? All these suspicious deaths surrounding the family, the financial crimes and so forth, followed by his, you know, attempted suicide where he hired a former client. And by the way, I, I mentioned the uh, a drug count, but I think the allegation was that he was involved in like a drug trafficking ring. Um, so it was it, it wasn't just, you know, simple narcotics possession that he had a drug problem like he actually was trafficking drugs um, in volume. But when you look at the actual evidence that's been introduced at trial, if you didn't have all this other noise, right, or if you didn't have the introduction of all these other facts that, you know, one could argue shouldn't be admitted at this trial, then the evidence is is interesting, but still sufficient or, you know, it still points towards his guilt. I mean, we've only heard from the prosecution, but let me tell you for a moment what that is. So he claims that he found his wife and son, right? And you just described a brutal shooting with his son's head being blown off. So obviously it was a bloodbath, right? When police yeah, arrived, very he, was obviously. Clean, right, right. he was in a clean white t-shirt and shorts. And there was just no blood, no dirt, no evidence of any kind of distress. We can only imagine what it would be like to, if we were innocent, find our loved ones under those conditions. You'd think that you would approach them. You wouldn't, you know, hug them, grab them, try to do CPR, examine them, something that would leave a stain on you. Uh, but that was not the case. Suddenly, they've discovered this TikTok video that he himself had put out of him and his son about an hour earlier uh, making fun of a tree and the way it was planted, but it shows him wearing different clothes. So the prosecution's introducing that to show that, in fact, he changed. And we know he changed because this video was filmed not just earlier that day, but an hour and change earlier. And he's wearing a blue button down and khakis. But when he called 911 and acted distressed, he's wearing a clean white shirt and shorts, you know, barely wrinkled. Um, so that's evidence that he changed his clothing. 
They found a blue raincoat with gunshot residue stowed away in his mother's home. Um, this is damning. Two other pieces of evidence. Uh, the son, Paul, previously, and this is what happens when you murder someone, you don't know what they've been up to right before, um, had been shooting a video of a dog that belonged to a friend, showing him that the tail might have been injured. So he called the friend and he said, something, you know, looks like there's something wrong with your dog. Um, and he said, all right, send me a video of it. And he was going to send him a video, but he didn't. Well, they found that video in Paul, deceased Paul's phone. And when they played that video in the location where they were murdered, they could hear Alex Murdoch and his wife talking or fighting in the background, demonstrating he was present. But he was present. And he had told police that he had never gone to that location. He hadn't heard from them. You know, they had eaten dinner previously. And that was the last that he saw them. Um, so they're building a case on, on, you know, a series of lies, including the fact that when he visited his mother that evening, Very he was there for maybe 20 minutes. He told her, you know, helper or aid you know, remember that I was here. And if you're asked, say that I was here for 30 or 40 minutes, that would have maybe helped his alibi. And, and at his mother's house, they found the jacket of his with gunshot residue on it. That was the raincoat. Yeah. That was the raincoat. But they had a witness indicating that they saw him uh, carrying a blue tarp. And um, the prosecution was trying to say, you know, she was mistaken, but it was a blue raincoat. And then on cross-examination, they asked her uh, whether or not she would mistake a raincoat for a tarp. And she so, said no, but still. So, so I mean, we, we don't know yet, but this, this evidence is not looking favorable for him. And now the jury will hear about his financial crimes. So let's, let's come back to this. I think it would be um, interesting uh, to have somebody from South Carolina on to chat about the local law and the local flavor of this case. Uh, we'll see if we can't effort that in the weeks to come. Um, in the meantime, uh, the expert insiders that we are will continue to analyze this. It'll be it'll be interesting to follow along. Uh, if you like what you hear here, here on this uh, radio show, go to BarquetteEpstein.com, click on Crime and Justice Radio, and there are 80 plus episodes that you can hear. And of course, check out our website for My all the goodness. great work we do. <laughs> great night. Great speaking with you. We'll see you again next week or talk to you again next week. Have a good week, everyone. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.